uh, downtown Prez, and you know, I've been trying to fill the shoes that Jonathan left. Um, they're, they're big shoes to fill. So uh, it's really good to be with y'all and, um, and to be worshiping with you and, and opening God's word with you this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at the New Testament book of 1 John. So you can turn there um, in, your, in your Bibles. I don't know if y'all have the same experience, but for me 2019 is kind of the last month that I, last year that I can remember. Like 2020 is just, I don't know what happened to it, is just completely gone from my, from my memories, it seems like. Um, and if you can remember back in 2019, it was the, one of the big things that year was it was the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Um, I got really into it. And I listened to all these podcasts just obsessively. I was all about it. I was watching the SpaceX launches. I was, I was all in. And one of my favorite, no, my favorite podcast that I listened to about the moon landing was um, this one called What We Saw. And one of the things that the podcaster talks about right from the get-go is all the conspiracy theories surrounding the moon landing. And he says that when people don't believe in the moon landing, it kind of bugs him. He really, it, it, it kind of drives him nuts. And the reason is because he grew up in the 60s and he saw it all happening before him so he lived in florida like he saw the rockets being launched from cape canaveral he saw it and he remembers like just the development of the space program and how the whole country was on board and everyone was behind it and he he actually watched on tv the first time that the astronauts landed and walked on the moon he saw it he lived it and there's zero doubt in his mind whatsoever. We landed on the moon July 20th, 1969. He is positive beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he wants to convey to his, his listeners that certainty, the certainty that he has, that this thing really, really happened. And that certainty is something that the Apostle Paul, not Paul, John, uh, the Apostle John is after for his readers in 1 John. John wrote this letter uh, from the city of Ephesus to churches in the surrounding area. And those churches were experiencing uh, some division. They are experiencing some uncertainty and some confusion. One of the reasons was that Jerusalem had fallen in AD 70. And when that happened, the, the church was scattered and the temple was destroyed. Now, for many of the, in the early church, who, which was largely, a large, for a, lar- a large part of it was Jewish, um, the destruction of the temp- temple was devastate- devastating on a scale that you know, we can really maybe struggle to, to comprehend because the temple was where God was. And when the temple was destroyed, that means God was no longer there. That means that God had, le- had left his people. And so for the Jews, this was extremely devastating. And yet in the midst of this situation, John is, re- is extremely hopeful and confident. And the reason he's able to be that is because he had become convinced that God was present with his people, not in the temple, but in a man, the person of Jesus Christ, of course. And so the certainty that that moon landing podcaster wants for his listeners is the same certainty that the Apostle John wants for his readers. He wants them to know that their faith is true. that The God that they're putting their faith in was true and trustworthy. And that it was through Jesus Christ that eternal life can be found. John understood that if Jesus 
is who he said he was, if that's real reality, then it must become the paradigm by which we understand all of reality. And as such, John understands that any certainty that we have about the, the things and the truths of the Bible and of our faith begins or ends with the incarnation. The incarnation is the theological term for the idea that God himself became a man in Jesus Christ. So did God be, really become a man? Did that really happen? Is that reality? And if he did, what does that mean for us? That's the central question of the opening passage of 1 John, which we're going to look at today. Um, and it's the question we're going to, um, yeah, it's the question we're going to be um, studying, the reality of the incarnation and what does it mean to live in that reality. And those are my two points this morning. Um, the reality of the incarnation and living in that reality. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to read the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. So if you would, turn, it's there in your bulletins or you can turn your Bibles as well. Um, hear now the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we know that you teach us through your word who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, we want to love your word and we want to learn to love you through it. Lord, would you teach us this morning? In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. All right, first point, the reality of the incarnation. You know, we sometimes think about Jesus. I sometimes struggle to think about Jesus as a friend. In my mind, he, he's probably walking through life more of a mentor than a friend, right? He's come, someone that kind of comes along and maybe gives his, his wisdom and his teaching to his disciples, but probably not getting to the intimacy of friendship. That's, that's how I tend to imagine Jesus. And yet what we find in Scripture is that he is act, that's actually not true. Jesus actually had a best friend. And his best friend was the Apostle John who wrote these very words. You know, the Gospels describe John as the disciple that Jesus loved. There was an intimacy of their friendship that wasn't matched by anyone else. And that means that John had personal knowledge of the facts of Jesus' life in a way that no one else did. And John, John was the son of, of a fisherman. He probably grew up poor, somewhat uneducated. But he was one of the first disciples that Jesus called to follow him. And you can almost imagine it. Think about John. He's a really young man. And he starts following Jesus and listening to him. And, and they go to a wedding one day. And in that wedding, they run out of wine. And John actually sees Jesus go into the back room. And he actually watches Jesus turn these big jars, these clay jars of water into wine. He sees that happen. Or you can imagine him starting to develop this friendship with Jesus over the years. And he starts to... Jesus starts to claim that he can forgive sins as if he was God himself. 
And then John, you know, he goes with him and James and Peter, at the, they're at the top of a mountain. He sees, he actually sees with his eyes, Jesus being clothed in, in glory and majesty right in front of him. John lived these things. He saw them. He actually heard Jesus say that he would save the world, but then he watched him be horribly and uh, brutally crucified. Of course, then three days later, he saw him rise from the dead. And he saw the empty tomb, and his friend Jesus, he was talking to him and touching him and hugging him. He saw it. He actually experienced it. And that's why he's able to say in our passage in verse 1, he says, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. He says in verse 2, we have seen it. We testify to it. John is saying, I was there. I saw it happen. These things really, truly happened. My best friend was God himself. God became a man in the person of my best friend, and I saw it. Now, you, you know, in ancient cultures, you actually have a lot of stories of the gods becoming men. So, for example, Zeus, right? Zeus would regularly come to earth to kind of manipulate events in his favor. You know, maybe he's fighting a war against the other gods or he's trying to seduce women or something. I mean, Zeus became a man um, pretty regularly in the, and he'd take on the form of a man. But there's something different about what the early church believed. First of all, many of them were Jewish, as we've already said, and that meant that they had a very clear idea that God was other than them. Right? God, God, God never took on the form of a creature. And that's why in, if you're in the wilderness, when Israel made a calf of gold, that was so severely punished. Because God is not a creature. He's other than them. He is the creator, not the creation. Right? They knew God did not take on the form of creation. He was different. Well, that's the first. The second thing is that the early church didn't believe that God had taken on the form of a man. Like he's a shapeshifter like Zeus, right? Who, he can kind of become whatever he wants. No, the early church actually believed that God had become a man. Right? That's totally different than any other religion, than any other ancient culture. God becomes a man. And John says as much in our passage. He says, that which was from the beginning. Right? The, he says in verse 2, the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. This is the, um, the incarnation. This, the, the, the root of that word is the same um, word, same root as the word carnal. Right? Carnal, it's like fleshly. Like God enfleshed himself. He became muscles, organs, bone. He was born in a stable. He grew up with parents. He knew what it was like to, to work and to, to eat and to enjoy food and to skin his knee. He knew this. God enfleshed himself. There is no other religion that has ever believed this or does believe this. And what John is saying as a firsthand witness, I saw and touched him. It really happened. Now, why would John start a letter? A letter where he's trying to provide certainty for his readers of their salvation. Why would he start that with the incarnation? Because there's a sense in which if you can wrap your mind and your heart around the miracle of the incarnation then everything else Jesus said and did is eminently believable. 
Right? If Jesus was really God, yes, of course he could heal people. Of course he could raise people from the dead. Of course he could speak with immense, incredible wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Of course he could, because he's God. C.S. Lewis put it um, maybe best. He said, if the thing happened, and then he's talking about the incarnation. If the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. If this thing really happened, it changes everything. If it didn't happen, we can throw out our faith. But if this is real reality, then it must be the paradigm by which we understand everything else. You know, a lot of people um, will say, you know, it, you know, the fact the, the, the Bible, we don't, it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not it really happened. Um, Jesus is kind of an idea or, or maybe he's an ideal Right? He's, he's someone who loved well and, and, and acted wisely and kind of displays the potential of humanity. Well, I, I was actually reading um, an interview a couple of years ago in the New York Times, and, and it, it was around Easter, and, um, and so they were, the interview was about the, the, the resurrection and the, just the facts of Easter and these things. And the, the person they were interviewing made this claim. They said, those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. What the empty tomb symbolizes is that ultimate, the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Now, the really sad part is this is actually a seminary professor, president, in fact, that they were interviewing. Right? This is not, I guess, the most orthodox of seminaries. But this is what they're saying, is that no one can really know the facts no one can really know what happened, but let's not get bogged down with facts. Because what, re- what we need to know is that love ultimately triumphs. But John, in our passage today, he says, no, listen, I know the facts. I was there. I saw it. I heard, saw, and touched Jesus. He, John, was there. And the things that Jesus did and said are not symbols or metaphors. They are reality. And this is so crucial. Like the historicity of Jesus, the historicity of our faith, the happenedness of it, is at the very center of John's faith. And it's at the very center of ours because you realize like, our faith is not predicated on some, um, some subjective feelings that some people had 2,000 years ago. No, it's predicated on real events that really happened. And that's why we say the gospel is good news, not good advice. Right? It's the declaration about something that, that really happened. It's news, not advice. And we believe that it's in this reality that life can be found. This is why he says in verse, he calls the gospel in verse one, uh, the end of verse one, he calls it the word of life. The word of life. Life can be found in this new reality. Um, why, do, why, why does all this matter? Why does it matter that it, it's, um, that it really happened? Why does the, the happenedness of our faith really matter? Well, I think, you know, we all long for what we might call a vocation. We all long for a job that we, that we go to and we can just say about this job or this career, I was made for this, right? We long for that. Well, what were human beings made for? If we can step back a little bit, what were human beings made for? 
Well, at their most basic, the Bible teaches us that they were made to know and to relate to God. And so the fullest life is the life that is lived in a healthy and right relationship with God. And, and in the incarnation, what you see is a God who is in so many ways far off, in so many ways distant, in so many ways unknowable. He comes close. Right? He becomes knowable. He becomes one of us. God the Son, he, he became a human being, and he's still a human being. And that opens up the doors for us to know God and to experience him and to know what he's like and to see him and know him. But this is also what it means <clears throat> that God became a human being. Well, it means that it, it gives unique dignity to you and I as human beings. You know, I think... We, we say things like, oh, well, you know, I'm only human, right? It's, it's this expression of like, listen, guys, I mean, don't, come on, don't hold, I mean, it, it kind of denigrates and, um, and, and uh, kind of this negative view of our humanity, like, hey, listen, guys, you know, what do you expect? I'm only human. It's a, kind of a bad thing. We all know that. But how do we, we interact with our humanity, like our limits, our, 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 um, our emotions, even our bodies, how do we interact with those things if the God of the universe has become a human being? You know, I had a conversation with one of our, my um, seminary professors once, and seminary has been described to me as, and I think this is probably true of most um, like vocational or graduate schools, it's, it's like drink, trying to drink from a fire hydrant just the amount of information coming at you is just overwhelming. Um, you can't, you really can't get it all. And so I was expressing to my professor just this frustration, like I just, like I feel like I can't get a handle on all the reading and all the things I'm supposed to know and there's so much that I wanna hold on to, so many tidbits of wisdom and I, I just, I'm like, I'm trying to consume all this and I can't and it's driving me nuts. And my professor, he's um, English and so he has this English accent. Um, and he said to me, Jeff, it is a beautiful thing to be a human being. It's who God made you and wants you to be. You see, God, and God made you and I human beings on purpose. We shouldn't resent it. We shouldn't denigrate it. We should, we, should be, we should be thankful. We should enjoy it. We should love it. Even our limits are part of God, who God made us to be. There's glory and dignity in our humanity. Do, do not despise it. God himself became a human being. Okay. So that is the reality of the incarnation. What about living in that new reality? Well, the incarnation kind of highlights, if I could say it, highlights the problem with the faith that's about, it's, that's about kind of inspirational religious experiences on the one side. Like, all right, we're not going to get bogged down in the facts. We're just going to have moments, you know, moments with God or whatever. It also kind of, um, it kind of highlights also the problem with this um, cold intellectual assent to the truths of the Bible. Like, yes, I believe that's true. You see the two ends of the spectrum. Um, for, for John, both of those ends are incomprehensible. Because if the incarnation happened, then it becomes the paradigm of reality through which we live our lives. 
It really happened. It's really a fact. And yet it's, has, it has profound um, implications for everything that we do. The happiness of the incarnation must be at the center of our lives. And this is, um, as I said, my second point, living in the new reality. John highlights two consequences of the new reality, fellowship and joy. Fellowship, you know, that's a Christianese word if I ever heard one. Um, You know, really, we're the only ones that use it. This is what it means, as one commentator put it. Sharing the experience of a common yet transcendent bond. It's a deep relationship with one another that transcends circumstances. And that's important because our world today is full of circumstances. Right? It's full of, like, we got COVID, we have vaccines, we have politics, social media, on and on and on. There are tons of circumstances that are there and ready to divide us and split us and make us angry and, and bitter and everything else. And yet, we, what, what John is calling us to is a relationship and a bond that transcends circumstances. Transcends all that background noise. Look at verse 3. He says at the end of verse 3, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, the point of the Christian life is fellowship with God. If you can imagine an inner city baseball team, they can't afford the uniforms that it takes for them to play in the city rec league. And um, a local business sees their, their, the problem and they step in and they decide, we're going to sponsor this team and we're going to buy uniforms and hats. And we're even going to buy gloves and bats and bases and the whole thing. But then imagine this team being, receiving all of this, right? They get everything. And they're so overwhelmed by the generosity that they never actually go out and play baseball. Right? The uniforms were never the point, right? The the uniforms were a means, a means to what? To play baseball. And so if you stay in the uniforms, you're never actually getting to the point of it all. For followers of Jesus, the incarnation, Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation itself is a uniform. It's a means. A means to what? To knowing God. Right? Fellowship with God is the game. That's the end. That's what we're going, that's what all these are pointed towards is knowing God. And what John says is that because the incarnation is real, he has certainty that he knows God, that he has fellowship with the Father and the Son. Because when he knows Jesus, he knows the Father. Where did he get that idea? Well, from Jesus himself. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What Jesus is saying is that if you know him, You know the Father. 
If you know Jesus, you know God himself. And that is a bond that transcends the circumstances of our world and our lives. It's a bond with God that transcends the, the, the ups and downs of our lives, our, the roller coaster that we go on. It transcends even our screw-ups and our, and our good days and our bad days. It transcends that. If we know Jesus, we have fellowship with God that transcends circumstances. This new reality changes everything about our relationship with God, of course, but it also affects our relationship with one another. He says in the middle of verse 3 there, so that you too may have fellowship with us. If you remember our definition of fellowship, sharing the experience of a common yet transcendent bond, fellowship with God results in fellowship with one another. Where does friendship begin? Friendship begins when we find common ground, when, we, uh, when we, we share loves or interests with someone. You know, my wife, she, one of the things she found quickly when we had our daughter was that she just opened the doors to all these friends that she didn't know were possible. Because the common bond of motherhood is a real thing, and it really um, is a, is a, it's a, it can be a foundation for really sweet friendship. Well, if you're in Christ, you have in common with everyone else who is in Christ. You have in common a fellowship with God, the Father, and with the Son. And this is a deep, intrinsic bonding agent that joins people together across cultures, languages, temperaments, genders, socioeconomic statuses. It, it, It joins people together in a way that no other common ground is able to do. It is truly transcendent. And we share it with one another. And that's actually, and it's actually in that fellowship, that that fellowship itself is what forms the basis for Christian community. Not because we all, you know, are the same, not because we all look like each other, think like each other, or whatever. No, the, the fellowship that we have with God is the basis for Christian community. Unfortunately, one pastor put it, he said that the church has become content with a simple social camaraderie instead of a deep spiritual fellowship with God and one another. Christian relationships have a unique bond, or at least the potential for a unique bond. We all share together a relationship with the God who became a man who who died for his people. And that should open us up to deep friendship. And listen, we live in a lonely age. We live in a lonely, lonely age. Disconnection, isolation, those are the norms. And, And of course we all know, we've seen and read the articles and seen the documentaries about how all our technology and everything is just driving us further and further apart. We all live in these little islands of our own personalities. And loneliness is rising and surrounding us, threatening to drown us. It is everywhere. And I don't know if you in your life have had the experience of like needing the people of God. I have. And one of the things that happens in those moments is I, I'm, I'm always a little bit surprised when I experience the love and the care of God's people for me and for my family. I never expect it. And I guess I, I believe that this is one area that the world needs the people of God. 
a, there's a professor at Oxford named Sarah Williams who's, who's a Christian and, um, and she says that how we live together is what we have to offer the world. How we live together is what we have to offer the world. You see, it's not just us that needs the Christian community, the fellowship of Christians. No, the world needs an outpost of connection and of love and of friendship in the desert of loneliness that is our world. And I think that is what John is calling us to in 1 John chapter 1. Okay. If the, secondly, joy. Fellowship, joy. Um, if, this is, I'm going to conclude with this, actually. So if the immediate effect of this new reality is fellowship, the ultimate effect is the completion of joy. Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Listen, I know people who have stunning vacations in Europe, right? They have wonderful, well-adjusted children, a wonderful marriage, live in beautiful suburbs and beautiful homes, and yet are on antidepressants. And and don't hear what I'm not saying. I know that I'm like very good medical reasons for antidepressants. I'm not saying that at all. I'm on board. But but what that highlights is that there is, a, there is a hopeless solitude in our world that money, vacations, the perfect family, going to the right restaurants, like, that is not remedied by those things. And into that world, John says, I want your joy to be complete. How, how do we have joy in the midst of this world that we live in? Well, what if we served a God who didn't tell us to just grit it out for 80 years and then you can escape all the pain, right? A God who didn't just say, hey, listen, if you just ascend to my level, you could rise above the pain of the world. No, we serve a God who did not tell us to climb the mountain to where he is. He is the one who comes down. He comes down. He becomes a man, a man who could suffer, a man who could hurt, a man who could die and did. Right? That is the God. That is a man who can help us, who can save us from our sins. And he did those things for that purpose. Why would he do that? Well, the author of Hebrews actually tells us, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us... Also, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then this is it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is to say, it is for Jesus a joy to know us, and to love us. Jesus himself is looking forward to the day, just as we are, when our fellowship will be completed. And when that happens, not only will our joy be completed, but Christ's will as well. He became a man. He he endured the cross. He rose from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And he's right now working to bring about the completion of, of our joy and his. And what that means 
is that any joy we feel in this life will be just a shadow. It's but a, a glimpse of the joy that we will share with Jesus Christ. And, and, and our, those glimpses of joy will be a reminder of that which has not yet come. Because behind every moment of joy is an aching for a completed joy. And that joy will be completed. And John knows that with the same certainty that he knows that Jesus was God who became a man. That joy will be completed when, when Jesus comes and redeems humanity, when he comes again finally to redeem the church and all of creation with it. God will come again to dwell with us. He will come again. And it won't be for a time, it will be for eternity, and we will know him, and our joy will be completed on that day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that these things are true.